Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Thursday, February 29th, day 146 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borshel Dan here with our editor, David Horowitz. Hi, David. Thanks for joining me. Sure. Hi, Amanda. We'll hear why Hamas leader in Gaza, Yair Sinwar, believes Hamas is winning the war. We'll talk about how Defense Minister Yoav Gallant is apparently taking a principled stance on Haredi conscription. We'll follow up on Temple Mount restrictions for Ramadan and discuss the municipal election's low voter turnout. All this and much, much more when we're back. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. According to a report in the Wall Street Journal, Hamas leader in Gaza, Yahya Sinwar, believes that Hamas is winning the war it started against Israel on October 7th, telling the senior Hamas officials in Qatar that his ruling terror group, quote, has the Israelis right where we want them. David, what do you make of this kind of statement? Well, it's very interesting. um, And it's... um unknowable in terms of whether it's true or not, but it's pretty plausible. He's alive. Um, The main senior leadership of the terrorist army, uh, as far as we know, are alive. Um, The war is not over and Hamas has not been dismantled. What's interesting for me, I think, is that there's a certain similarity between what he reportedly says is happening and what the Israeli army says is happening. In other words, he's still got some of his forces intact, uh, he says, and uh, we're ready for them in Rafah, um, which Israel does not dispute that it hasn't targeted Rafah, and that his goal is to survive. And um, Israel is basically saying we've dismantled three quarters of Hamas's battalions, not the ones in Rafah. Um We've moved from high-intensity conflict um, with heavy um, combined um, air bombardment and and a massive troop um, presence in Gaza to a much reduced military presence. Um, And in areas where the battalions have been dismantled, there is still fighting and it's more um, of a kind of a guerrilla-style fighting. So both sides are kind of saying the same thing. The question becomes... So who's actually winning or going to win as things play out? And to some extent, it's an open question. Israel is adamant that it will go into Rafah. The prime minister is adamant. The Israeli army chief is adamant. Even, by the way, if there is um, another hostage release deal, which involves a truce. Um, And therefore, it will dismantle Hamas as an organized military force. And it will keep 
looking for the Hamas leadership until it finds them, whether in Gaza or wherever else they may be. Where it's also worth highlighting what is being said is uh, the the sort of natural consequence of what Sinwar is reportedly saying is that he thinks somehow they can survive uh, and is ostensibly content with the notion that it will mean Israel is sort of semi-permanently deployed in Gaza and and his organization will turn into a guerrilla force. Um, Again, uh, the Israeli political leadership is indeed talking about um, uh, overall security authority, uh, fighting continuing for for many more months and so on. There, I I don't understand why Sinwar thinks that's the case of having Israel where it wants it. Uh, It might be a very big drain on Israel. Uh, It might be very controversial in Israel. But I can't imagine that Sinwar, in his heart of hearts, regards victory as having lost overall control of Gaza, uh, lost his army as an organized fighting force, and being reduced to an endless, on-the-run effort to maintain a presence uh, under Israeli security control. Uh, I don't think that constitutes victory. Um, But, you know, it's a very, very interesting uh, report. uh, And it's not surprising that the leader of this monstrous organization who carried out this savage attack on October the 7th uh, has convinced himself and is trying to convince others that it's all wonderful. It's horrific. Uh, And he has brought devastation to Israel, which he wanted, and devastation to Gaza, which he evidently doesn't care about. Right. One aspect of the report in the Wall Street Journal is that apparently Sinwar is counting on the high civilian death toll reported by the Hamas-run health ministry to cause enough global outcry that Israel is forced to withdraw. So it sounds like he's not accepting the fact that Israel will indeed be in the Gaza Strip, but is counting on the fact that the world will see all the death and destruction and force Israel out. Well, we we are seeing, you know, mounting criticism and we are seeing a mounting refusal uh, to, first of all, challenge Hamas's account of who is being killed. Uh, I personally think uh, Israel at an official um, level should be making much more of an effort to try to give the world material to indicate who is indeed being killed, under what circumstances they are being killed. Um, But yes, I understand where Sinwar is getting at the what you hear from the Israeli leadership, and I'm not just talking about the Prime Minister and his pre-war coalition, but the National Unity Party of uh, Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot, um, no, Hamas has to be dismantled. Their emphasis uh, very clearly is on the prioritizing of seeking the release of the hostages, but there is nowhere in the mainstream Israeli political leadership saying anything other than we have to continue this conflict until Hamas is dismantled and until Hamas no longer poses a threat with the capacity to do anything remotely like October the 7th. Now, yesterday in a televised speech, Hamas chief Ismail Khania called on Palestinians in Jerusalem and the West Bank to march to Al-Aqsa Mosque to pray on the first day of Ramadan. This is March 10th. During the war, seemingly in a, a measure to raise tensions in the area, we have not yet seen another front in the war from the West Bank, a full-on front, though there has been a rise in, in tensions, of course. Do you see this actually happening on the streets? I mean, the future is unknowable. Um, I think Hamas expected that there would be much more, how should we put it, participation of one form or another or overt uh, p- uh, support um, for 
the horror show um, that it instigated on October the 7th and uh, the consequent conflict. And we've not seen significantly um, massive um, participation and violence, not from the West Bank, not in East Jerusalem and not within Israel. Um, and what Hania is trying to do again is stir things up. The um, October the seventh was was branded by Hamas. The slaughter of civilians was branded by Hamas as the Al Aqsa flood, uh, an effort to try and um, achieve some kind of ostensible religious legitimacy for the barbarism that they carried out. Um, because Al Aqsa is so sensitive an issue, um, and it's failed to date. There was talk um, of a request. I think it's fairly clear that there was indeed a request by Itamar Benver, who's the police minister, um, to impose not only limitations which already apply on most West Bank Palestinians coming to Israel, but to maintain those and maybe um, heighten those restrictions during Ramadan. But he was talking about some kind of blanket restrictions on some parts of the Israeli Arab community. And the cabinet, we understand, uh, it's not been formally confirmed, I don't think, but it is being widely discussed as as a fact, including by uh, senior people in the government. The war cabinet decided that basically Ben Gvir is not going to run <laughs> the decisions regarding the Temple Mount during Ramadan, and it will be the war cabinet that does so, and that there won't be sweeping restrictions on Israeli Arabs, and there will be an effort to ensure that people who are not going to pray, but rather going to incite and cause violence, will be prevented from doing so. Uh, it's an incredibly fraught period, and you indeed, unsurprisingly, have Hamas people trying to stir up trouble, and you have controversy and argument within this extremely problematic Israeli coalition with its far-right component and its far-right pyromaniacal police minister. Uh, hopefully, the combination of other voices in the war cabinet, including uh, Yoav Gallant, who said last night... Um, we need to ensure freedom of worship for uh, Israel's Arab citizens. And he said he's sure that the right um, precautions will be taken. So hopefully that will be the case. But it's going to be a very, very fraught period. Let's go to a short break. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Yesterday, Defense Minister Yuav Gallant called for an end to military draft exemptions for members of the ultra-Orthodox community. And he said he would only back legislation settling the matter if it is endorsed by centrist ministers Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot. Now, Gallant has come forward and stood apart from Likud already a few times since he has been in the role of defense minister. So what do you make of this new announcement, David? Well, I take it at face value and I don't take it uh, as any sort of kind kind of you know personal political move or a, an intended um, personal challenge to the prime minister. Um, it's the head of the military hierarchy saying things cannot go on. And I would imagine that the vast majority of Israelis think he's absolutely right. 
And they've thought that that was the case for decades. Um, but in the last few months, the army has been saying, hey, we actually don't have enough people. They've advanced the draft for people who were in pre-military programs in some cases because they were so short of recruits. Um, and the figure that we saw presented to a Knesset committee last week was um, above 60,000 uh, ultra-Orthodox young men who this year um, were excused the draft. Uh, and about 500 of them chose to um, join up in any case. So, you know, a tiny, tiny percentage, even in this time of absolute crisis, um, recognized that they needed to, you know, get under the stretcher in the Israeli vernacular. And the overwhelming majority did not. Um, we have two ultra-Orthodox parties in Israel, and there are voices from the Sephardi ultra-Orthodox party, Shas, including at ministerial level, who have said essentially that this can't go on anymore, although not quite that. But you have had, uh, you know, I remember a Shas minister two, three weeks ago who said that if you're not actually genuinely studying Torah full-time, you need to serve in the army. And there are people in senior positions in Shas who did serve in the army. So with that party, you'd think that just possibly you might be able to find some kind of consensual solution. With the Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox party, um, which comes under this sort of alliance known as United Torah Judaism, that is a much harder nut to crack. And I don't think that there will be any easy willingness on the part of their political leadership to consent to military or national service for all, as Gallant is demanding, and as uh, uh, essentially uh, Gantz and Eisenkot are demanding. So what Gallant was basically saying was, he, he didn't single out uh, um, Gantz and Eisenkot, he said, you know, I'm not, I, I will support any legislation that resolves this, uh, and that is supported by all members of the coalition, and I'll oppose any legislation that isn't. Uh, and that means, uh, as far as I can understand, including the IDF's efforts to extend military service and extend um, reservist service requirements. You know, any legislation that relates to the way the army drafts the, the citizens of Israel, I think Gallant is saying, I'm not going to submit it. Now, it's possible that somebody else might submit it. He's the defense minister, and therefore it would be pretty radical for somebody who isn't the defense minister to try to you know, bash through legislation that relates to the army's recruitment process. So basically he's saying, we need to sort this out, ideally by consensus, um, and otherwise I'm not, I'm not going to initiate, never mind, you know, support this, any legislation on this issue. The clock is really ticking on this issue. I just want to drive home to our, our listeners that there is a deadline of uh, March 24th that the state has to respond to a hearing that happened this Monday. And the resolution that has been allowing for these deferrals is up on the 31st of March. So there's really a, a doomsday clock in a way for the Haredi parties that they're going to have to, in some way, work with the rest of the coalition to create some kind of legislation that would pass the scrutiny of equality in the high court. Do you think that there's any chance that this will happen? I honestly don't know. And I'm, you know, pretty low on the prediction business, as I think we all should be after October the 7th, about anything. But there's no reason yet to believe that um, certainly UTJ, the Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox party, is remotely inclined uh, to go along with any uh, radical shift. And time is indeed very short. Um, and I don't know what the justices of the High Court will choose to do. But this has been going on, I mean, for decades. 
And there have been all kinds of maneuvers and adjustments and pleas, and the court has essentially indulged them all. Um, and I don't know when their patience is going to run out. Uh, but indeed, there are dates. By March the 24th, the state has to go back to the high court and say, here's why we think that the last maneuver we uh, um, engineered to try to avoid uh, drafting ultra-Orthodox uh, Jews is not illegal. That's what the court said. You, you, you passed a resolution saying, giving us more time. Um, you keep promising that there's going to be a law. Well, now you've got, you know, we're now at a stage where they've got basically three and a half weeks to explain, you know, why this is okay. And they're not going to be able to say, well, it's okay, because here's the law. It's going through, I don't think. So, indeed, time is short, and it's uh, it's not clear how this is going to pan out. You can be sure, by the way, that the mindset in the Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox street is, at least for some, it's, it's hysterical. I don't think for all, but for some it's hysterical, as in we quite possibly would, would see widespread, potentially very unpleasant demonstrations from the ultra-Orthodox community. And we've seen major demonstrations when, when an individual has been <laughs> arrested by military police uh, for evading the draft. Um, so if the entire community is being asked to step up, and by the way, through frameworks, I mean, Gallant was not saying, hey, I want you all in the paratroopers tomorrow morning. He was saying there has to be responsibilities as well as rights. And we can't manage without this fastest growing sector of the Israeli populace. He was also speaking about other sectors of the populace, including parts of the Arab community that don't serve. He was saying we need to do this. We need to do it by consensus. He's not... Um, pushing any kind of, you know, extreme secular ideology. He's saying the military needs you. And if it's not the military that you're going to serve in, then other, other programs for national service. Nobody is requiring you to change your lifestyle. Nobody's going to push you into frameworks that are, that are not, um, that can't, that can't uh, um, enable you to maintain your lifestyle. And one last thing we should stress, and we've said it many times before, Avoiding taking responsibility while living in a country is not the orthodox tradition. It's the opposite of the orthodox tradition. The orthodox tradition is the community supports the best and the brightest to keep Torah study vibrant and alive. And, and the rest of them, you know, the, the, the obligation you know, to provide for your family, to take a stake in your community, to be a responsible citizen, that is the orthodox tradition. And it applies most everywhere else in the world, except in Israel. So there is one area of national support that the Haredim are really, really good at, and that is turning out to vote. And we just had our municipal elections on Tuesday, and we saw a, a drop, a pretty marked drop of voter turnout, but not in the ultra-Orthodox community. What do you think of that, David? First of all, I thought you were going to say there's one area where the ultra-Orthodox really you know, are strikingly present, and that is in... Um, uh, emergency rescue volunteer work. So we should say that. Uh, and it underlines that there is a will. And there, I think there's a potential will in much of the community. Um, I don't think it's universal. And I think it's going to be a struggle. But I think the political leadership is part of the problem, not part of the solution. And I think there is a recognition. And I can tell you this sort of anecdotally, um, that it's not right, and that there should be some contribution that the community makes. 
As regards elections, it's, you know, this, it's very interesting because I wrote something yesterday and I feel quite strongly about it. And I've seen other people who've interpreted it very differently. So we had municipal elections. There was a significant fall in the turnout compared to previous elections. The nationwide turnout was just below 50%. Uh, and I've seen people interpreting that as, you know, these elections should never have been held. It shows that the mainstream of Israel is basically not interested in dealing with anything other than the war and the hostages. And we should never have had these elections. And the fact that there was a relatively high turnout or very high turnout in the um, ultra-Orthodox and the Arab community underlines that here you have two sections of the populace that are essentially disconnected from the Israeli mainstream. They went about their narrow political business as usual. And of course, it shows that we should never have held the vote in the, in the first place. Now, I do not share that sense. Um, I don't think it's uh, surprising that many people are traumatized by the war, preoccupied with the war, and, and couldn't bring themselves to vote. But I do think it's unfortunate. You know, we had demonstrations for um, nine months here, you know, passionate demonstrations, essentially revolving around the, the sanctity of Israel's democracy and the need to preserve it and defend it. This was an exercise in democracy. And... Uh, I think a high turnout would have demonstrated the, the commitment to democracy. And there was a day off. Uh, everybody had the day off. Every, lots of people went shopping. People queued for 70 minutes outside the opening of the first Sheikh Shack in Tel Aviv. Um, but I, I bet you some of those people did not take the 10, 15 minutes uh, to go and vote. And there, there's real consequence. Again, there were, there were demonstrations. And we've just spent, I don't know how many minutes, talking about the ultra-Orthodox and their roles and their rights and their responsibilities. So I live in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is an increasingly ultra-Orthodox and Arab city. And there is a dwindling minority of Orthodox, um, traditional and secular Jews. The turnout in Jerusalem is, was extremely low. The ultra-Orthodox turnout, I assume, was relatively very high. And last time I checked, I'm not sure that the results are final yet, but it appears that the ultra-Orthodox um, uh, representatives will hold a majority on Jerusalem City Council. Well, so you can take the view and say, yeah, but I'm you know, preoccupied with the war. And in some cases, there's every reason for people who have been directly affected, which is a lot of people. Uh, and yet, issues that are of great concern to Israel's mainstream um, are reflected in the elections. And there is consequence of the elections. And there's consequence for the cities in which people live of staying away or voting. And I just think it was a, 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 it was very unfortunate. I'll, I'll be as gentle as that. Uh, and I speak from the perspective of Jerusalem, where there will be consequence of the fact that the ultra-Orthodox community, as far as I can tell, turned out as they traditionally do in very high numbers, and the non-ultra-Orthodox Jewish community did not. In Jerusalem, the turnout, we should add, the low turnout is exacerbated by the fact that Arab voters in the city who have the right to vote, uh, as far as we know, continued their boycott of the entire process, again, self-defeatingly, because they believe it, it gives legitimacy to Israeli rule in the city. Uh, that's another factor in the depleted turnout. There's one figure that I just cannot figure out in terms of the low turnout, and that is inside the Israeli prison system, only 48% of eligible voters were said to have cast their ballots. What else do they have to do? Well, so just about the national average then, Amanda. David, thank you so much for all of your insights today. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by the Podwaves. If you have any questions or comments about this or any other episode, please drop us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. <laughs>